This is Rabbi Shammai Engelmeyer, and welcome to Keep the Faith, our weekly podcast in which we explore contemporary issues through the prism of Jewish law and tradition. Of all the major issues on our front pages these days, mass shootings, the battle over gun control, Russia's war in Ukraine, runaway inflation, climate change, and its role in an anticipated horrendous hurricane season, federal COVID-19 mandates, and so on. It's the Supreme Court and the decisions it's about to hand down that will take center stage in the next few weeks as its current term ends. The very acceptance of the court itself by the people of this country may be at stake. And that means our democracy itself may be at stake. Several things are certain as we await what are unquestionably to be the court's most controversial rulings in decades. First, however the court rules in these cases, there will be a huge outcry among those who hope for different outcomes. We're already seeing some of that in the spate of demonstrations against the court's anticipated overturning of Roe v. Wade and a woman's right to have an abortion. Second, if the court rules in these cases as it's expected to rule, shooting down abortion rights, expanding gun rights, breaking down the barriers separating church and state, upholding restricted Trump-era immigration policies, limiting the government's power to regulate carbon emissions, thus limiting what it can do about climate change, and so on, there will be increasing demands to pack the court to put its radically conservative justices back in the minority. If those demands are met, the battle to pack the court will be brutal. Third, and probably the most ominous, the public's faith in the court will be all but shattered. As it is, the latest findings from Gallup's annual governance survey shows an approval rating for the court of just 40%. That's its lowest rating in the 22 years Gallup has been measuring the court's approval rating. Even worse, this new low comes just a little more than a year after its approval rating measured 58%, its fifth highest rating since 2000. That so huge a drop can occur in a single year tells us just how bad things are where the court is concerned. Aside from issuing controversial rulings in so many hot-button cases, the court also is expected to announce whether it will hear an appeal in a North Carolina case that could put our very election system in jeopardy just a year or so before the 2024 presidential election. At the heart of that case, known as Moore v. Harper, is something called the Independent State Legislature Theory. It would give state legislatures the exclusive power, the exclusive power to govern congressional and presidential elections, and it may even allow those legislatures to overturn election results they don't like. Neither state courts nor a state's election officials would have any say. If the independent state legislature theory was in force in 2020, Donald Trump likely would still be president. 
The goal of many of those who advocate the theory is to virtually guarantee that this country will be ruled from the right for generations to come. Since at least four justices are believed to favor the theory, taking on the case would signal a looming threat to our democracy. And so, the topic for this week is the state of the Supreme Court, the approach its majority takes in deciding cases, and what the justices could learn from how Torah law is decided. To argue that the court has not become politicized is nonsense. Trump, when he was president, put three justices on the court because of their political views, not because they showed any deference to unbiased decision-making. And Mitch McConnell and his Republican-controlled Senate kept President Obama's nominee, Merrick Garland, off the court because he didn't share their political views. That hasn't stopped several conservative associate justices of late, and especially the longest-serving one, Clarence Thomas, from attacking the notion that the court has become politicized, or that its opinions are designed to promote the right-wing conservative agenda. In the university lecture he gave a little over a year ago, in May 2021, Thomas warned that arguing that the court decided cases based on the justices' political views would, quote, jeopardize any faith in the legal institutions, unquote. Obviously, he's oblivious to the fact that faith in the Supreme Court is eroding at a fast pace. Other justices have said much the same thing as Thomas, including the court's newest sitting member, Associate Justice Amy Coney Barrett. In a speech last year, she said that she and her colleagues are not a, quote, bunch of partisan hacks, unquote. Judicial philosophy, she said, not partisanship or what they rely on. As I said, that's nonsense. These justices don't even bother to disguise their contempt for anyone to the left of them. Thomas, for example, is one of the court's worst partisan offenders. He's known for giving partisan political speeches in partisan political environments, and of even hosting right-wing think tanks like the Heritage Foundation in the Supreme Court building itself. Associate Justice Brett Kavanaugh also is especially noted for his public attacks on Democrats and liberals. Kavanaugh didn't even bother to display any degree of even-handedness at his own confirmation hearings in 2018. Said he to the committee's Democrats, quote, You sowed the wind, and the country will reap the whirlwind, unquote. Kavanaugh was referencing a verse from Hosea. He used that verse to warn the Democrats that they would face dire consequences for opposing his nomination. Associate Justice Samuel Alito, for his part, recently attacked several Democratic senators because they suggested that the court might need some restructuring because the public was losing faith in it. He called it, quote, an affront to the Constitution and the rule of law, unquote. Perhaps the most obnoxious judicial philosophy these justices espouse is the notion of originalism. Oxford defines it as, quote, a type of judicial interpretation of a constitution, especially the U.S. Constitution, that aims to follow how it would have been understood or was intended to be understood at the time it was written, unquote. 
In the words of one of its ardent advocates, law professor Stephen Calabrese, who chairs the board of the very right-leaning Federalist Society, quote, originalists believe that the constitutional text ought to be given the original public meaning that it would have had at the time that it became law. The original meaning of constitutional texts can be discerned from dictionaries, grammar books, and from other legal documents from which the text might be borrowed. It exists independently of the subjective intentions of those who wrote the text or of the original expected applications that the framers of the constitutional text thought it would have, unquote. But simply, the words of the Constitution are engraved in stone. What its words say, not what its authors may have meant by those words, is all that counts. The premier originalist on the Supreme Court was the late Associate Justice Antonin Scalia. He put it this way in a 1996 speech, quote, I don't care if the framers of the Constitution had some secret meaning in mind when they adopted its words. I take the words as they were promulgated to the people of the United States and what is the fairly understood meaning of those words, unquote. Barrett said much the same thing at her confirmation hearings. Referring to the Constitution, she said, quote, I interpret its text as text, and I understand it to have the meaning that it had at the time the people ratified it. So that meaning doesn't change over time. And it's not up to me to update it or infuse my own policy views into it, unquote. I'll come back to that statement in a moment. In any case, that's what they claim to believe. But their originalists' argument is full of holes. Especially when it comes to past Supreme Court decisions, they don't feel comfortable tampering with. One such decision, thank God, is the court's landmark ruling in 1954's Brown v. Board of Education that ended segregation in public schools. That decision relied on the 14th Amendment's guarantee of equal protection for all citizens under the law. Brett Kavanaugh, for example, told senators at his confirmation hearings that Brown was one of the four most important decisions in the Supreme Court's history. It's an amazing thing for an originalist to say. As the constitutional law professor Harry Littman noted last year in an article in The Atlantic, that most originalists claim to support the Brown decision only highlights the speciousness of their argument. Wrote Littman, quote, The historical record shows that the legislators who voted for the 14th Amendment would have been shocked to be told that they had just voted to desegregate schools. For legislators and citizens and judges in 1865, that principle didn't mandate integrated schools. For Americans in 1965, it did, unquote. Let's return to Barrett's comment that the text is text, and it's not up to her to update it. The day after she said this, she was asked by Senator Lindsey Graham to elaborate on her comment. She did so by focusing on the Fourth Amendment, which protects citizens from being subjected to unreasonable searches and seizures. What the amendment doesn't do, she said, was, quote, 
catalog the instances in which an unreasonable search or seizure could take place. It enshrines a principle, and we understand the principle as it was at the time, but then it's capable of being applied to new circumstances, unquote. In other words, despite the fact that the text is the text, in her words, and even though it's not up to her to update it, as she said, it's nevertheless, quote, capable of being applied to new circumstances, unquote. What is that if not updating the text to meet new circumstances? Originalists are originalists, but only when they need to be to suit their political agenda. I made this point in last week's podcast as well in discussing the Second Amendment. It doesn't say anything like what the originalists claim for it. It says the right to bear arms is dependent on the need for a well-organized and regulated militia. Since there's no longer the need for such a militia, the blanket right to bear arms doesn't exist today. In fact, the Supreme Court in 1983, without comment or dissent, upheld a decision by the 7th U.S. Circuit Court of Appeals that included both. The right to keep and bear handguns is not guaranteed by the Second Amendment, unquote. A conservative court in 2008 overturned that decision in a 5-4 to four vote. The five included Chief Justice John Roberts and Associate Justices Thomas and Alito, as well as the then Associate Justice Anthony Kennedy. The decision was written by Antonin Scalia. Scalia argued, and the others agreed, that the Second Amendment's opening phrase regarding a well-organized militia was not really a part of the amendment. It was merely a preface to it that was intended to define what the framers meant by the word arms. Wrote Scalia, quote, The conception of the militia at the time of the Second Amendment's ratification was the body of all citizens capable of military service who would bring the sorts of lawful weapons that they possessed at home, unquote. Since those citizens in 1787 would bring the guns that they had at home, that meant the Second Amendment gave all citizens in 2008 the right to keep guns in their homes. In other words, the text is the text, but if part of the text doesn't suit your political agenda, it's okay to dismiss that part as irrelevant in some way. Put another way, even though, to again quote Professor Calabrese's defense of originalism, that the text, quote, exists independently of the subjective intentions of those who wrote the text, unquote. Their intentions come into play when the need arises. Talk about hypocrisy. This is why the Supreme Court registers so unfavorably with the American public today. And that's one of the most dangerous developments over the last few decades. We depend on the Supreme Court to be our protector against action by legislatures or government executives intruding on our rights and privileges as guaranteed by the Constitution and its amendments. When the court becomes just another vehicle for such intrusions, the very future of our democracy is imperiled. Jewish law accepts that the Torah's text is the text, period but not end of story. 
tradition has it that at the same time as the Torah, the written law, was handed down, so was the oral law handed down. As the very first paragraph of the Mishnahic text Avot, also known as Pirkei Avot, or the Ethics of the Fathers, put it, quote, Moses received the Torah at Sinai and transmitted it to Joshua, Joshua to the elders, and the elders to the prophets, and the prophets to the men of the great assembly, unquote. The Torah in that statement is the oral Torah, the oral law. There's some validity in my mind to the notion that the oral law at least began at Sinai. Take the Sabbath commandment. It states, quote, Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Six days of the week shall you labor and do all your work. But the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. You shall not do any work, not you, nor your son, nor your daughter, nor your male slave, nor your female slave, nor your animals, nor the stranger within your gates, unquote. This is not as straightforward as it seems, because so many words need explaining, and someone was bound to ask Moses for those explanations. Some examples will suffice, and there are a number of others. One, what does a day mean here? When does it begin and when does it end? Two, how does one remember a day? Three, what does keep a day holy mean? Four, if the text says that in six days you should do all your work, is this actually a separate commandment requiring us to work on those six days? What if someone's retired? Five, what's the definition of work? This is probably the thorniest question. Is it work of any kind or only a specific kind, like working at a job? Does work require a certain minimum amount of physical exertion to qualify as work? Or does something simple like flicking away an obnoxious fly qualify? Does mental exertion also count, such as thinking about how to get some physical work done after Shabbat? Is putting food on the table work? I could go on, but... I'm sure you get the point. The text is the text, but it's written in a way that requires it to be interpreted, not just in the context of the there and then when it was given, but more important, in the context of the here and now when it needs to be put into use. The text was written so as to be flexible enough to meet the tests of time and place and circumstance. If anyone asked Moses to clarify this commandment, and Moses did so, that's the start of the oral law. At least, that's how I see it. As I also see it, Judaism would never have survived if, say, we left it up to Amy Coney Barrett. Quote what she told senators at her confirmation hearings, quote, I interpret its text as text, and I understand it to have the meaning that it had at the time people ratified it, so that meaning doesn't change over time, and it's not up to me to update it or infuse my own policy views into it, unquote. Given the many questions involved in defining work, if we followed her words, we'd never even be able to get out of bed on Shabbat because we need to expend some energy to do so. For over 2,000 years, our sages of blessed memory and the rabbis who came after them have wrestled with the text trying to discern what that text meant when it was given and what it meant in their day. 
They believed, of course, that every word and even every nuance in the Torah came directly from God. These were God's words and God's words alone. Given that, how did they have the chutzpah to tamper with God's words? There's a wonderful Midrash that provides the answer and also sums up Judaism's approach to Torah law. There was a debate about a particularly thorny issue involving the ritual purity of a certain oven. One sage, Rabbi Eliezer, insisted that the oven was ritually pure, but all the other sages disagreed with him. Frustrated in his inability to convince his colleagues, Rabbi Eliezer finally cried out to heaven for support, and a voice from heaven gave him that support. Another sage, Rabbi Yehoshua by name, immediately shot back at the heavenly voice by citing a verse from Deuteronomy that states that the Torah, quote, is not in heaven, unquote. Yet another sage, Rabbi Yirmiya, then explained what Rabbi Yehoshua meant by that. Quote, since the Torah was already given at Mount Sinai, we do not pay attention to a divine voice, unquote. Put another way, Rabbi Yehoshua said to God, You had your say at Sinai. Now it's our turn. We'll decide for ourselves what your words mean. The Constitution was crafted with that same idea in mind. Its words set forth the basic rules of the Republic it created, rules that its framers clearly understood must stand the test of time and place and changing circumstances. In essence, that's the written law. At the same time, as the Torah did for its laws, they did for the Constitution. They created a system that allows for interpreting what the Constitution said in 1787 to fit the needs for all the centuries that would follow. The framers had their say in Philadelphia in 1787. They left it to others to decide for themselves what those words mean in 2022. In making their interpretation, both the Torah scholars through what we call the halachic process and the secular interpreters of the Constitution rely heavily on precedent. Mindful, however, that even those precedents were formed at a fixed time and place. Uppermost in Jewish law is one guiding principle. We're to live by the law. In other words, Torah law, written or oral, must never become so onerous and exacting that it's intolerable to us. The sages took this principle very seriously. Said they, quote, It is better to uproot a Torah law so that the Torah is not forgotten, unquote. By that they meant that the people found a law to be too difficult for them for whatever reason. They might simply reject all of the Torah's laws. Better to annul one law Sages said, then let the whole system of laws fall apart. In a separate discussion, the great sage Rabbi Natan makes the same point, but he bases himself on a verse from Psalm 119 that reads, quote, It is time to work for the Lord, for they have violated your Torah. Unquote. Said Rabbi Natan, if the circumstances require it, the competent authorities should, quote, violate the Torah in some way because it is time to work for the Lord, unquote. Meaning, 
that the Torah's overall authority is more important than an individual law. Maimonides, the Rambam, codified this in his code. If exigent circumstances require it, he said, quote, any court has the power to set aside even a Torah law, unquote. The same, he wrote, applies to rabbinic precedents. Quote, a later court has a right to reject a decision based on the interpretation of a former, though higher court, higher intellectually, where scripture says, go to the judge who will be in those days, meaning you shall go according to the authority of your own time, unquote. Rambam's point was that how an earlier court ruled based on the circumstances in its time, even if that court was superior in knowledge, might not suit the circumstances that exist at a later time. To stick to the earlier ruling, therefore, could put all of Torah law in jeopardy with the people. Here's an example of how that works. In Deuteronomy, we're commanded to release someone who owes us money from that debt when the Jubilee year arrives. That's black-letter Torah law. By the time of the first century CE, though, people were refusing to loan money to those in need if the Jubilee year would arrive before the debt was paid off. The great sage Hillel, therefore, crafted a new law that effectively cancelled out the Torah law. A century or so later, that law itself had to be modified because of changed circumstances. The bottom line is this, Jewish law is evolutionary and flexible. It needs to reflect its roots in the Torah, but it must also reflect the needs of the moment. If the particular law is rejected by the masses, all of Torah law may eventually also be rejected. And so, those responsible for interpreting the law must take that into account. That's not the way the current Supreme Court works in deciding American law. Survey after survey and study after study make that clear. One recent study, for example, showed that beginning in 2020, the current court has become far more conservative than a significant majority of Americans are comfortable with. As many as two-thirds of Americans, for example, don't want to see abortion being made illegal once again, according to one recent poll. The court, however, is expected to overturn Roe v. Wade this month. Approximately 60% of Americans want stricter gun control laws. But the court is expected this month to make it easier for people to carry concealed guns and to make it harder for government to regulate guns. As Gallup's latest survey shows, only 40% of Americans have any faith left in the Supreme Court, and that's likely to drop down even further before June comes to an end. That's why the really big news this month is not any of the major issues we're confronting, but the Supreme Court itself, and with it, the future of our democracy. This is Rabbi Shammai Engelmeyer. I do hope you come back for my next podcast, and I'd like to hear what you have to say about this or my other podcasts. Go to www.shamai.org www.shamai.org and email me, please. If you don't get the Jewish Standard but want to read my columns, go to the columns page of my website. 
The latest column is about the importance of Jerusalem remaining a united city under Jewish control. Shabbat Shalom. Stay healthy. Keep wearing those N95 masks in indoor venues, no matter who tells you otherwise. And get fully vaccinated if you haven't done so as yet, including both the first and second booster shots. And above all, stay safe.